You're listening to an Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. AGO Talks are recorded live in the gallery and feature artists, writers, and curators exploring how art shapes and inspires us. Please visit us online at ago.net slash talks. Welcome to the Art Gallery of Ontario. My name is Paula Poletto, and I'm the manager of adult programs in the Artist-in-Residence program here at the AGO. And I'm very pleased to be working with La Cap tonight um, for this presentation. We are grateful, in particular, to Tamara Toledo for approaching us with the opportunity to host Gerardo Mosquera's talk this evening as part of La Cap's Latin American Speakers Series, a series which not only contextualizes Latin American art within Canada, but creates opportunities for meaningful cultural exchange on a broader scale. It's also a, a nice moment for us because we have just opened uh, this past Saturday a Landscapes of the Americas or Picturing the Americas exhibition, and I hope you all have a chance to, to see that work. Um, and uh, this is uh, a way for us to also engage uh, contemporary practices in the Americas as well. I'm going to hand uh, the mic over to Manolo Lugo, who is the chair of La Cap to introduce Gerardo. Thank you. Thank you, Paola. I would like to acknowledge your presence on the ancestral lands of the Huron-Wendat and Seneca First Nations and the Mississauga of the Credit River. Welcome, everyone, to the eighth season of the Latin American Speaker Series. Tonight's lecturer is Gerardo Mosquera. My name is Manolo Lugo, and I am the chair of the board of LACAP. LACAP has been programming the series in order to offer opportunities to engage with, learn, and interpret contemporary Latin American art. Our guests are invited to share their work through lectures, audiovisual presentations, discussions, interviews, workshops, and one-on-one -on -one studio visits with local artists and practitioners. Please take some time to look through our program for upcoming lectures with artists uh, J. Castro and Minerva Cuevas. We're fortunate to have our guests this year also partic uh, participate in exhibitions in Toronto for which La Cap is launching its new gallery space on Queen's Key and Young Street. I urge you all to attend the inaugural exhibition at Sur Gallery entitled Sportsmanship Under Surveillance on June 27th of this year. So this upcoming Saturday. <laughs> the exhibition will run until August the 8th, uh, 2015, and all the information is on our website. So be sure to pay it a visit. I'm sure you will be delightly, uh, delightfully surprised. Um, today's event is co-presented by OCAD University, the Latin American Canadian Arts Projects, and the Art Gallery of Ontario. I would like to personally thank Paola Arombadin for all her support in the realization of this event, as well as the Office of the President um, of OCAD University, Dr. Sarah Diamond. I would also like to thank Michael Nguyen and Kathleen McGlenn from the Art Gallery of Ontario. Gerardo Mosquera occupies a special position within the hemispherical critical landscape due to his role both within Cuba as well as in the context of the Americas. 
In the 1980s, he contributed to the renewal of Cuban art and the consolidation of La Bienal de La Habana, Habana Biennial, an event that would become in the 1990s one of the most important reference for hemispheric artistic practice and that of the developing world. Since then, his name has been associated with the renewal of the gaze with which North America has traditionally seen the art of Central and South America. Until then, linked greatly to the magical and the religious. Ante America, an itinerant exhibition co-curated in 1992 by Mosquera at the Queens Museum of Art of New York, now the Queens Museum, can be considered the point of departure from which a new vision of the artistic cultures of the American continent emerged. This exhibition also introduced Caribbean art production to the exhibiting rhythms in the Americas. Today, Mosquera is considered a beacon of critical production in the nations, considered the periphery or the global south. Without further ado, please help me welcome Gerardo Mosquera. Thank you, Manolo. Thank you, Paula. I would also like to, uh, to thank um, uh, La Cap and very especially Tamara Toledo uh, for this invitation. And I want to recognize uh, the tremendous e effort that Tamara has been doing for many years to bridge Latin American art and, and, and the Canadian uh, art uh, world and the Canadian scholarly uh, milieu. And I will also like uh, to thank the Art Gallery of Ontario for this opportunity of being here with you <clears throat> to discuss the birth of the Havana Biennial. You know, at the moment, the 12th uh, edition of the Biennal, I'm going to, to, be, to, to be more uh, uh, short to say Biennal in, in Spanish to refer to the Havana Biennial uh, along my talk. So the, the 12th edition is now up, and I will refer to the three first ones as an utopian project that uh, made a historic contribution to world art. Uh, I'm sorry to tell that I have no images. It has been said that we are living in the uh, age of the image. So since I am old, I will go back to the age of the text <laughs> and will read some ideas just to be more precise and articulate, articulate. There is a certain amount of idealism in every biennial, even, even in every exhibition. Donna de Salvo has said that curators trade in ideals. This idealism comes from narratives of enlightenment and humanism that have been deeply, deeply built into art. In his report on the 1997 Bellagio Conference, Michael Branson underlined 
the opposition between the realistic approach to curatorial issues of the curators who participated and the, the heroic, in some cases, messianic ambitions of the biennials they were curating. Although we are now living in more cynical times, it is true that around every biennial hovers a fairy feeling that the event will contribute something positive to the spirit or even make this world better. Difficult task. On the other hand, the practical goals of biennials are frequently the result of optimism about the functional possibilities of culture, which sometimes prove to be a failed myth in the short run, at least. Is the fact that some uh, 200 periodic contemporary art exhibitions, the so-called perennials, uh, you know, we are, this, this is a new uh, uh, term that has been uh, a coin to refer to period, big periodical international exhibitions because not all of them are biennials. We have triennials, we have documenta every five years, etc. But we, ha we have around 200 of them in the, the whole world. But are, are them, them the consequence of the need for art or just the use of art? This is an open question. I'm going to discuss, to discuss here what we could consider the ultimate utopian biennial the Bienal de La Habana in its first editions. The Bienal was born in the utopian context of the Cuban Revolution out of the desire to transform international power relations in art circulation and legitimation. No less idealistic were the biennials more down-to-earth political and ideological ends. It is amazing how Miss recognizes the historic role of the Biennale remains, the event which recently celebrated its 25th anniversary is now well known internationally and enjoy, enjoy, enjoys a certain sex appeal due to its location, but despite its large scale, it is mostly considered a minor, somewhat messy biennial. There is a scant knowledge about the groundbreaking role it played in transforming international art circulation towards the broadness it enjoys today, breaking away from the restrictive, restrictive situation that prevailed in the mid-1980s. And, in, and in also in changing mainstream hierarchies. Hopefully, the development of exhibition studies as a new scholarly discipline will eliminate the itinerary of silence, as Gayatri Spiva would say, that the biennial has suffered, probably because of its marginal situation and its being too revolutionary uh, in several senses, among them the circumstance that it was happening in Cuba. 
Well, since I'm going to analyze the not well-known origins of the Havana Biennial, I will have to provide a factual uh, account. But my approach will uh, forcefully be a personal one too, as I will discuss the three initial editions in which I participated. I was a co-founder of the Biennial and resigned from its organizing team immediately after the 1989 edition. This decision was taken in part because of my disagreement with the way in which the event was envisaged and my concern for its future in the midst of post-Cold War stagnation and official conservatism in Cuba, and in the face of increasing censorship of critical Cuban artists. So, perhaps I am in an almost contradictory position to discuss the Biennale's initial edition, editions. Added to that, I am very critical to the way in which the Biennale has developed up to the most uh, recent edition. The creation of the Biennale was suggested by Fidel Castro himself. Without his having a full idea of its implications. It was the last and most ambitious international cultural event focused on Latin America and the so-called third world that was launched by Cuba, a country well known for organizing international conferences, symposia, and congresses of every kind and in all fields as a way of publicizing its political messianism and crafting a positive image of itself. Representation has always been a priority for the Cuban regime, and its practice has surpassed the country's scale and economic capacity. Before the Biennale, there were international literary awards, international theater, film and music festivals, and cultural journals some of them running since the 1960s. Many are still in place, and the Latin American Film Festival has maintained its relevance at the regional level and uh, beyond. During the 1960s and early 70s, such institutions as Casa de las Americas and the Cuban Institute of Art and Film Industry exercise a top cultural and ideological influence in Latin America. Before the creation of the Biennale, there was no big international event in Cuba dedicated to the visual arts, although there were Latin American print and photography contests, which included exhibitions organized by Casa de las Americas for many years. Cuban painter Wilfredo Lam's death in Paris in 1982 triggered the Biennale's foundation. The son of a Cuban black woman and a Cantonese immigrant, and an artist who used modernism to launch a third world imaginary, Lam was the perfect ethnic, cultural, and artistic symbol to inspire the event. 
the Cuban government rushed to appropriate his name when he passed away and launched a resolution create, creating the Centro de Arte Contemporáneo Wilfredo Lam in Havana with the mission, the mission of researching and promoting art produced in the so-called third world. The Biennale was the center's main assignment. The first edition was organized very fast in 1984 by the Visual Arts Division of the Ministry of Culture under Beatriz Aulet's direction, simply because the, the Lamb Center had only a legal existence at the time. It thus became the fourth consistent large international biennial after those of Venice, Sao Paulo, and Sydney, and the sixth international periodic art event to be established following in the footsteps of the aforementioned biennials, the Carnegie International and Documenta. The Biennale, like the other international cultural events in Cuba, was funded by the Cuban government, which in turn was subsidized by the USSR at the time. Being a socialist country with a state-run centralized economy, it was easier for Cuba to access government resources to organize such large events. The reason for the Cuban regime's intense expenditure in cultural activity has always been ideological with a strong international side. We can consider this to be either utopianism or political expediency, or both. However, we would be restricting our view on this policy if we were merely to think that its only purposes were to promote socialist ideas, to fight against the isolation imposed on Cuba by the US, by the US to showcase a positive image of the country and to co-opt Cuban and third world intellectuals. Since the revolution in 1959, Cuba has been an outpost for ideological struggles by virtue of its combination of geographic location and political messianism. The Cuban revolution has always had an expansionist agenda and has been involved in revolutionary warfare and subversion throughout the world. Beyond obvious differences, the arts were approached in a similarly aggressive way. The Biennale took advantage of the facilities and networks that were established to implement the Cuban state's geopolitical goals, especially its immense web of embassies throughout the world. A network comparable in scale to that of larger powers and absolutely beyond what might be expected of the country given its size and resources. This network <clears throat> with its diplomats, buildings, transportation and communication facilities and local connections in many countries was instrumental for the Biennial's organization. If uh, during certain periods, 
Cuba maintained considerable political autonomy. By the 1980s, it was fully within the Soviet bloc. However, Cuba was a strange member of the bloc, a Caribbean country with a very distinct culture, the most Spanish, and simultaneously one of the most African Latin American countries, located, located only 90 miles from the United States, its clocks showing the same time as New York, with a long and consistent modernist tradition beginning in the early 20th century, the Cuban Revolution produced one of the toughest and most radical regimes. But since it happened in a Caribbean country famous for its music and nightlife, it was also, as Che Guevara proverbially put it, revolución con pachanga revolution with a party. Moreover, Cuba had a genuine Latin American and third world cultural and political agendas that was sometimes at odds with the Soviet Union's communist orthodoxy. And as part of the role of beachhead for communism and USSR policy that Cuba has all, uh, had always played, its peculiar character was used in those days to try to make Cuba into a third world leader. In aspiring to this status, it was competing with China, which opposed the Soviet bloc at the time and was also trying to claim a leadership role to the third world. This confrontation was the reason why neither Chinese artists nor artists of Chinese descent were invited to the first biennials. <laughs> Therefore, for historical, political, and cultural reasons, Cuba had a true inclination towards Caribbean, Latin American, and third world cultures on the one hand, but on the other, this inclination was exploited and supported by the Soviet bloc as a means of gaining political influence over other third world countries. The institutional backdrop that I have just very roughly described also possessed some positive aspects which made the historic role played by the biennial possible. The Cuban government launched the event with political aims, remaining unaware of the, of the Biennale's artistic and cultural scope and importance, but was smart enough to leave its creation to a team of specialists from the visual arts field. The government gave the curators considerable latitude, interfering only in decisions that would have a direct political impact, such as the exclusion of the Chinese or the inclusion of North Korean official artists who, given that country's authoritarian regime, were just doing official propaganda. So we had to make a, a concession, but we managed to present a show on Korean landscape painters. 
No Kim Il-sung portraiture. Well, uh, such a policy has been typical of the Cuban government since the revolution. It has generally allowed the arts uh, um, a considerable degree of freedom, despite the fact that it has gone through numerous repressive episodes. It was also clear that in organizing an event dealing with such a vast range of countries and artists, it would not be possible to maintain a restrictive Mar Marxist ideological frame. For example, a text in the second biennial catalog began by invoking Allah and stated that the main purpose for an Iranian Muslim artist was to access a divine condition. So the Biennale was conceived as an open space for contemporary artists, critics, curators, and scholars from Africa, Asia, the Caribbean, Latin America, and the Middle East, as well as their diasporic communities in Europe and North America. Space to meet and become acquainted with each other's work and ideas beyond questions of ideology or sheer politics. This was the, the Biennale's, uh, this was the Biennale's most important aspect. But the event was also uh, pragmatic in, so, in the sense that it responded to the practical need to create a platform for research and promotion at a time when artists from the uh, so-called peripheries, which are most of the world, were unknown beyond their own local contexts. Of course, by so doing, the regime was successfully contributing to fulfilling its political goal of becoming a third world leader. At the same time, however, the Biennale was satisfying a critical need for contemporary art outside the mainstream, and was giving room to a sincere commitment by the Biennale's curators to work inspired by, by a vision that they considered of global importance. The Biennale thus embodied a convergence of go governmental politics and a plausible commitment to transform the circulation, knowledge, and legitimation of contemporary art on a global scale with a vision for the future. The Centro Wifredo Lamb reported to the Ministry of Culture, created in 1976. The Centro's director, and therefore the Biennial's director, was a Communist Party member trusted by the Ministry. But she, Gillian uh, Janes, from the 1986 Biennial up to the uh, 2003 one, uh, but, so Gillian, the curators, and other specialists had the chance to shape the Biennale conceptually and in practice with considerable, considerably freedom. Well, no, uh, Gillian Jamenes was actually uh, from the second Biennale. 
1986 to the sixth one in 1997. It is crucial to consider that the Biennale was born in the context of a radical cultural renovation being carried out in Cuba by a new generation of visual artists and critics that had emerged at the end of the 70s. The so-called new Cuban art transformed forever the conservative ideology-oriented official culture that had prevailed during the decade, pushing the Ministry of Culture to cultivate a more liberal policy. The young emerging artists developed a critical, postmodern, internationally open approach in the 1980s that expanded from the visual arts to the rest of the arts and continues today. This was really crucial. It was not only a vision about the, the, the role for the biennial, but it was also about a context which created a very favorable ecology for the event to develop its mission. Uh, so this liberal climate was crucial to shaping the, the Biennale's nature and providing it with an environment where an intense artistic and cultural spirit bloomed. At the same time, the event functioned as a platform for launching Cuba's new artists. Held in 1984, the first Biennale was huge though restricted to Latin America for logistical and organizational reasons, and was launched as a sort of test and training experience for the organizers. The second edition, held in 1986, reached a full third world scope. It was the first global contemporary art show ever made a mammoth, uneven, rather chaotic bunch of more than 50 exhibitions and events presenting 2,400 works by 690 artists from 57 countries, 1986. The Biennale's variegated structure made it a true urban festival, a pachanga, a party, that involved the whole city. More importantly, never before had artists, curators, critics, and scholars from so many places, Beirut, Brazzaville, Buenos Aires, Jakarta, and Kingston, to name a few, met horizontally. What made this uh, Biennale historic was not its curating, but its curatorial perspective. If its curating suffered from the vastness and swiftness of the task and our lack of knowledge, preparation, and organization, the event's curatorial standpoint was nevertheless the result of a clear vision that anticipated the internationalization of contemporary art that we enjoy today. 
Thus, the Biennale's idealistica agenda hit its mark, triggering the foundation of other uh, biennials in the peripheries, fostering what Rafal Niemoyevsky has called a new breed of biennials. Istanbul, Guangzhou, Porto Alegre, and the like. Biennials that confronted the Venice paradigm and decentralized the organization of these events. The importance of, the, uh, of the, this breakthrough at the time is more evident when we witness that even today, a deficit in south-to-south -south linkage and interaction persists as a post-colonial legacy. It is true that globalization has activated and pluralized cultural circulation, making it much more international. However, it has done so to a great extent by following the channels designed by the globalized economy, reproducing its power structures. By the mid-1980s, segregation was an essential part of the visual arts system. The periodic international art events already in place, from the Venice Biennale to doc Documenta, were far from being global endeavors. This was not only because the participating artists were mainly from Western backgrounds, since only 5% of the artists who had participated in them at the time were not from Western Europe or North America. This is a very impressive number. But also because the event, the, the, this event's idea of art was restricted to the Western mainstream and the organizers were not interested in exploring what was going on elsewhere. Thus the Biennale created a new truly international other space while acting at the same time as a gigantic Salon de Refusé that involved most of the world. The Biennale was born out of utopianism, but also out of a spirit of action. We thought at the time, if we are marginalized, then let us create our own space, our own networks, values, and epistems, and cast them into the world, a goal that we have only very partially achieved. If in those days, the Biennale only included artists from the third world, this was done in order to confront their exclusion and la lack of intercommunication and networking opportunities, not because the event organizers considered that there existed a third world art as a distinct ontological category opposed to a Western art. As Louis Kamnitzer has said, the Biennale was not about otherness, but about itness. 
The Biennale, of course, recognize and emphasize artistic and cultural differences, but within a shared post-colonial practice of contemporary art, thereby providing little room for traditional or religious aesthetic symbolic productions. This was one of its main differences from Le Magicien de la Terre. In this sense, it was foreseen the current way in which art is created and consumed internationally, a process that involves the increasing role of a plurality of new artistic and cultural subjects and art scenes around the globe. Paradoxically, as a result of its focus on contemporary art in detriment of traditional visual culture, the Biennale was accused of being westernized. The third edition of the Biennale took place one year later than originally planned, in 1989. If you look into the history of the Havana Biennials, you will see that it uh, happened to be more of a triennial than a biennial, <laughs> because it's always delayed. At the time I was there, I was insisting, let's try to organize, let's organize tri a triennial, not a biennial. But then my point was rejected with a very good arg argument. Uh, the, 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 the director told me, Gerardo, if we try to organize a triennial, it will happen every four years. <laughs> well, the third Biennale was brought, under, uh, was brought under more control and narrowed down to a more reasonable, reasonable even if still very large scope there were 300 artists from 41 countries. Its catalog credited the Biennale's general curating to Gillian Janes Godoy, Nelson Herrera Isla, and myself. However, since its inception, the Biennale has already been the result of a broader teamwork. The general curators traveled throughout different regions in the world and came back with information and recommendations. In my case, I visited 17 sub-Saharian countries during 1987 and, and 88, and several others in the Americas, in this case responding to invitations to lectures uh, and other events. For organizational purposes, the globe was divided into zones in which the different biennial curators specialized. An important part of the curating was indirect, performed through researching the significant amount of documentation that the Wifredo Lam Center was collecting and by examining applications sent by artists from all over the world who responded to a public uh, call. Since the Biennale was an ensemble of different exhibitions, conferences, seminars, workshops, and interdisciplinary events, young curators were also engaged in organizing them, together with the so-called general curators and other staff members. 
this team spirit reached beyond the, the Wifredo Land Center staff as we actively consulted curators, critics, scholars, artists, and other experts from different countries and from other institutions in Cuba and around the world. We were curating with our eyes, going to the places, but also with our ears, so listening to what the experts in the context in the different uh, countries were telling and recommending to us. In spite of all this, there was plenty of improvisation and lack of curatorial rigor, especially in the main show, where the works were of, often badly displayed and protected with no consistent, consistent exhibition design. The technical deficiencies and the shortages typical of communist countries affected the curatorial process. From 1984 to 1989, all the biennials were curated by the Wifredo Land Center staff. This system has continued since then, but with a more institutional, anonymous, and centralized style focused on the centro's director. This scheme reproduces the country's own centralized political system and shows the organizer's apprehension about opening up to the participation of foreign curators. The Biennale has paradoxically become a global event that is always curated by almost the same official Cuban team. While most international biennials present themselves as, as less canonical, more autonomous spaces than contemporary art museums on the, on the basis of the guest curator's role in their organization and their less institutional and more flexible framework, this is not the case with the Havana Biennal. As a result, <clears throat> a lack of curatorial focus and of rigorous, uncompromised selection of artists has always afflicted the Biennal. All the more, its centralism has predisposed the Biennal to a certain authoritarian, bureaucratic, and even repressive stance, as was evident in the cases of indirect or blatant censorship that have occurred in the last editions. The first biennials, I insist, were conceived as organisms consistent, consisting of a constellation of uh, events. For instance, the third biennial assembled a large main international exhibition, 11 thematic group shows, 10 individual exhibitions, two international conferences, and eight international workshops. Apart from this central program, there was a constellation of exhibitions and artistic, cultural, and educational events organized by many museums, galleries, universities, house of cultures uh, throughout the whole city. This model intended, ideally, to employ a more diverse approach 
approach at the general level while keeping a specific thematic, artistic, and cultural focus in each particular event. It also proposed early on a move, all, a, a, a move away from the 19th century fair-like biennial, biennial prototype structure around national representations and the salon-style big show, whilst opposing the idea of the biennial as a big spectacle with direct market uh, reverberations. However, the Biennale never got rid of the contradiction of keeping the large customary blockbuster exhibition, regarded by many as the biennial, surrounded by smaller events or exhibitions that appeared as fringe ventures. The Biennale was idealistic in both international and local terms. The diversified, open, grid-like structure of the Biennale's first editions also looked for a broader social and educational impact and a deeper involvement with the city. Entrance to the, to the Biennale was free and the event was discussed in the media and in schools. There were outreach programs, but more importantly, the Biennale was everywhere in the city. Most local artists, even if not exhibiting at the Biennale, become involved with it in one way or another. A meaningful element of the Biennale's program in the early days was its bar. We were always concerned with providing an accessible space where participants coming from different continents, many of whom worked in isolation, would be able to meet one another informally and exchange ideas. This was not so easy in the Cuba of the mid-80s, before the country opened up to tourists when the few bars, cafes, and restaurants that were open to the public were usually both terrible and packed. <laughs> As a result, the two bars that the Biennale created at a couple of its main exhibition venues uh, were even included in the second Biennale catalog's list of exhibitions and events where they were referred to as meeting places. The bars were perhaps emblematic of one of the Biennale's main achievements, the foundation of a space for encounter and for the sharing of knowledge as part of the goal of creating a horizontal south-to-south -south platform very much based on personal contact between people from different art worlds. The 1989 Biennale made some crucial changes from previous editions. Awards and representation by, by countries were both eliminated. 
a general thematic approach was also introduced. The subject for the whole event was tradition and the contemporary condition in third world art and design. <clears throat> the third Biennale expanded the exhibitions and debates to include international design and architecture in a move that was later reversed, unfortunately. Even if too general, the event's subject was a timely one for analyzing the predicaments of peripheral and post-colonial art at the time. It was beginning to face globalization, a process toward which the Biennale had been contributing since 1986. We could say that given its philosophy and projection, the Biennale's theme in its third edition was the Biennale itself. The event has always focused on modern and contemporary art, developing the notion of a plurality of active modernisms and giving little room to traditional or religious aesthetic symbolist production, which at the time were frequently stereotyped as the authentic art created in third world countries, while other work was disqualified as an epigonal westernized uh, production. And that was one of the points that uh, had, have been criticized uh, about, uh, to Le Magicien de la Terre, which is this idea, you know, of, of uh, uh, a certain uh, 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 a, a will to put together a traditional uh, art uh, uh, practices, which are all, uh, which are really uh, religious uh, practices or social practices, together with contemporary uh, ones. So we we were uh, more aware about you know, trying to support the contemporary practice in the post-colonial uh, countries, which was, which was so important and was, and was overlooked both uh, by those who were looking into those countries' culture, but who, but who preferred the so-called traditional cultural production and the, the, uh, the curators and institutions working with contemporary art. Another significant change brought by, by the third Biennale was that European and North American artists with third world diaspora backgrounds, such as those identifying themselves as black artists from Great Britain, were included as was the, the Border Art Workshop from San Diego and Tijuana. <clears throat> this move was crucial in order to open out our geographic notion of third world, incorporating the porosities brought about by, migra by migration and its cultural transformations. The Biennale's international vocation was evident in the fact that Cuban artists have always had a limited presence in it, never in bigger numbers than artists from any other country. So if we chose 15 artists from Brazil, 
uh, we won't have 16 from Cuba. So that was a, a fixed uh, rule. We managed to show at the Biennale the new artists who were transforming the cultural status quo in Cuba instead of the established somewhat official ones. And it was difficult for us curating the, uh, the Biennales at the time. <clears throat> the emerging Cuban artists caused a great impression on visiting curators who invited them later to exhibit abroad. Of course, this also occurred for artists from other countries, proving that the Biennale was working as a space where peripher peripheral, generally ignored artists were valued by curators and critics from other peripheries and from the artistic centers. However, since central curators had money and solid and active institutions behind them, they were much more able to scout talent than their less provided for colleagues. This situation contaminated the Biennale, turning it, turning it increasingly into a showcase of third world art for European and North American curators, galleries, and collectors, following Cuba's own economic reconversion toward tourism. In 1989, however, the new Cuban artists were trespassing over the boundaries that the Cuban regime was prepared to tolerate. Their criticism of Cuban society and their deconstruction of the nation's official rhetoric had become too radical for an authoritarian military regime and was consequently suppressed. Even if the Biennale was a particularly tolerant space due to its international implications, in the third edition, Cuban artists with hard-hitting critical work, which meant most of them, were ghettoized in a group show called The Tradition of Humor, together with cartoonists, some of them official. This decision was imposed from the top as a way to divert and reduce the artist's social and political impact in the Biennale. It was a sign of the repressive backlash that was going on in Cuba, which a little later imposed drastic censorship on some shows, while liberal Ministry of Culture officials, such as Vice Minister Marcia Leiseca and Beatriz Aulet, were fired. The most repressive act was artist Angel Delgado's sentence of six months in jail for pu public scandal after a performance in what uh, felt like a clear warning to artists and intellectuals. And by the way, Tania Bruguera right, right now is in danger also uh, to, uh, of receiving a jail sentence in Cuba because of her performances during the Havana, uh, the current Havana Biennale. As a result, the new artists escaped en masse at the turn of the decade and settled abroad. And the intense, dynamic liberal climate that had prevailed in the 80s changed. Then, and I remember this very well, during the third Biennale's opening days, the Berlin Wall fell. 
After that, Cuba proved unable to reinvent itself in the new post-Cold War landscape and thus became a fossil. The regime survived and maintained its one-man power system by introducing minor changes to keep every, everything the same instead of responding to new challenging times. Cuban art's golden age was over. Even if such a dramatic diaspora made Cuban cultural authorities readjust their policy to, to more permissive standards, the limits of, uh, for radical art, artistic practice in Cuba became apparent. For me, it was contradictory to continue working for the Biennale after what happened, especially since, as an art critic, I had been an advocate for the new critical art. This was one of my reasons for resigning after the 1989 Biennale, together with an erosion of trust that I experienced as a result of other incidents. Also, even if I had always been a radical component of the Biennale's team, my transgressive spirit was escalating, becoming more at odds with the prevalent in inclinations. In this sense, a main question for me was the following. If we were organizing a groundbreaking uh, biennial, an event, an event that was different and that aimed to open a new space and to challenge the mainstream, why do so by repeating prevailing structures? Why put new wine inside an old wine skin? Why not create something distinct for the needs of a complex constellation of artistic and cultural practices? The Biennale never did this. Although it made substantial efforts in this direction, the issue was never an overall priority for the Centro Wilfredo Lam. On the contrary, the Biennale evolved as a standard international art exhibition instead of seeking new methods and strategies that could experiment and promote actions to transform the market-oriented approach. The Biennale never went drastically enough beyond the big show model, and even its positively diversified structure has been abandoned in re recent editions. Workshops, conferences, panels, publications, and outreach programs have been reduced or eliminated, and the broad interaction with the city uh, lost. The last several editions comprised mostly Latin American artists, giving up the effort to create a thorough global approach. As if indicating a ghostly presence from the initial biennial's decentralized configuration and Havana City's involvement, the most interesting aspects of the last editions were the multiple alternative autonomous or semi-autonomous shows and events conceived and organized by artists and young curators in spaces ranging from galleries to private, private houses in order to take advantage of the occasions 
and the chance for visibility that the Biennale creates. These events have been uh, too ab abundant and dispersed to be controlled and repressed, although incidents with the, the official authorities usually take place. This ghost biennial is usually more interesting, intense, and energetic than the official one. I believe the Biennale has lost its character and its possibilities. Although we could say that the Biennale's vision was already forging new times, the event was not independent enough to escape the conservative and authoritarian determinations imposed by the country that had created it. Thanks to the Biennale organizers' efforts, the editions of the early 90s managed to maintain the event's character. Eventually, however, the Biennale did evolve into just another standard international art exhibition instead of activating its inno innovative orientation and experimentation with new methods and strategies. And this was partially a consequence of, of losing its acting utopia. Thank you. Take questions and I'll pass the mic. There's one here and Johnson has a second one if there are any questions. And thank you, by the way, Gerardo. Uh, thank you. Um, you know, one of the things that, uh, you know, the rhetorical efficiency of continually referring to the, uh, the event as the biennial sort of collapsed two visions of biennial that are running together. And one is, you know, it is the Habana biennial, but it also sounds like it's very much the Cuba biennial. And that's, that seems to be where the incompatibility lies uh, because the cosmopolitanism that's implied by the Habana Biennial and its uh, its gathering point in a, a sort of a, a a place of connection to uh, you know global art community, but also uh, intellectual uh, discourse. Uh, you know, and then you mentioned how you know the you know it was brought into society by being part of the, uh, you know, the, the school curriculum. And, uh, and I thought, well, does that just happen in Havana or does that permeate into Cuba? And uh, was, that, was that a tension that you felt uh, was never resolved? If I understood you properly, uh, you mean that there was a tension between uh, 
Havana Biennial uh, uh, cosmopolitan or more global intentions and aims and, and the fact of being in Cuba and its contextual situation? No? Yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, uh, you know, I think, uh, uh, yes, I think uh, that uh, the turning point was that the world dramatically changed, uh, you know, after the, the, the fall of the wall. And in my opinion, uh, Cuba, uh, the Cuban Revolution, had perhaps the opportunity of transforming, uh, you know, uh, like in, in, uh, according to the new times, and, and propose something that could be more to the so-called third world side, and try to keep its uh, uh, social achievements while, you know, dealing with a, a new situation. And, uh, uh, but what happened is that uh, Cuba, the Cuban regime, kept the, the, its Cold War standards and, uh, and was very rigid in order to, you know, to transform according to the new times. And the, the Biennale, which, which is organized by the Cuban government, uh, suffered from that. So there was a certain moment in which there was a vision and there was a mission. And I think that the Biennial, to a great extent, accomplished uh, that mission and helped to transform what used to be a very segregated international art world. But then what? what what's next? Uh, and, and there, I think that there was a combination of the country's stagnation and the lack of, uh, of the Biennale's organi organizers, you know, the, the lack of, of uh, vision uh, toward uh, a, a second step, uh, you know, for the Biennale to accomplish. And that's why, in my opinion, the Biennale uh, transformed itself into one more Biennale where you can go, you, can, you will see good art, you will see bad art, but there's no longer any uh, backbone. There's no longer a clear goal. There's no longer a vision, you know, in order to fulfill a role beyond organizing an, an, an art exhibition. Uh, thank you for your talk. Um, I just wondered if you had any predictions about the, the uh, BNL, uh, given the, the change in the relations with um, the normalization of relations with the, the United States. Well, um, unfortunately, what's going, what's going on is that uh, the Cuban art world is, is, is becoming more and more commercialized because many, you know, wealthy American collectors, uh, you know, went there to the Biennale 
and they actually, you know, bought, <laughs> you know, the whole lot, <laughs> you know, in a, a very strong way. So, and, and artists organized, you know, visits to the studios and, you know, but where they were just trying to sell out their work. And so, uh, to me, the, 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 the other component of art, you know, I, I'm, I'm not against the market, of course, but this is like a, the, the, the occasion, I just was there, became like a very much market-oriented event in, in Cuba. At the same time, some very wealthy and successful Cuban artists, like Carlos Garaycoa, Los Carpinteros, Wilfredo Prieto, they have been buying uh, fantastic old houses and buildings, you know, in Cuba, since now it's, this is possible. And, and they are, their, their plan is to prepare those uh, venues uh, for, to develop uh, independent programs of art residences and uh, exhibition spaces, but out of the very strong commercial inclination which is prevailing in Cuba nowadays. So as a way, you know, to try to, to create like a, a different space uh, to keep uh, that. Uh, just as a follow-up, um, can you envision any kind of, um, for lack of a better word, I'll call it revolutionary response to the market, or could the market, could the outrageousness of the market, in some way, um, perpetuate an, a new uh, paradigm? Or is there? Do you see any uh, fruitful kinds of responses to? to this, like, I, I'm just kind of trying to imagine the, this um, fervent kind of purchasing and buying as almost a, a, a funny new kind of uh, artistic activity that gets out of hand and does its own thing or, anyway, I'm reaching here, but just, uh, I wanted to play with that idea. Oh, you know, actually what's going on is, is, is a contrast between, you know, the, the situation in Cuba, which is very hard for the people, there's a poverty and, you know, and the artists, many young artists, they have no possibilities. And then all these powerful rich collectors, you know, are riding by the lot in, in, in Havana, you know, and buying and, you know, so it's, sort of certain, it's not like, like a, a, let's say, normal market situation, but this is a, it's like a very big contrast. So, so this, ha, this has generated a very ter teratological response that I hope that if things continue to be more normal, perhaps we'll will go to like a certain standard. But on the other hand, I think that it's very important, the awareness 
among many Cuban artists and curators to try to create other spaces, you know, uh, for you know, to try to 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 foster a more cultural and critical and serious artistic uh, practice. What do you see your role as being now um, in in trying to help this? in the situation? Is it through criticism? Is it through maybe trying to help establish uh, these alternative spaces? Or, or what, what is your personal um, action? What would your personal action, uh, action be in this? Well, uh, to, um, I, I've been mainly, you know, uh, supporting new emerging uh, Cuban artists but uh, in, in inter internationally. Because since I resigned in, in, to the Biennale in 1990, I've been marginalized by the government. So I cannot curate, neither curate, nor teach, nor lecture, nor publish in Cuba. So I am completely out. I am, I am not allowed by the institutions. So what I do is I, I try to promote and to write and about young Cuban artists or include them in, in international uh, shows uh, or try to respond to certain problems. Uh, to put you a very recent example, I just uh, published uh, an article about Tania Bruguera's case at the Walker Art Center's website. You can you, you look to, the, to that website and you can read it there. So in which I was trying to analyze what happened and, uh, and to give more information about her critical uh, situation in Cuba and support her. For instance, I co-curated um, an exhibition on young Cuban art for, the, for INIVA in London back in 2006. And so, but more, mostly I include Cuban artists in, my, in other shows or write about them. Do you feel like uh there has been any space for a curatorial rigor within Cuba that's instilled itself? Uh, yes, I do think that there, there's space for that. And, uh, and it's, I mean, some, some efforts are taking place. And I think that now with the creation of this new independent spaces supported by these successful Cuban artists, there, were, there will be like a, a more uh, convenient space for young Cuban curators to develop interesting projects. There's a lot of talent, there's a lot of energy, 
This is, uh, Cuba always is very vibrant culturally. And you know, well, the country is in, in a, perhaps in a transition and a very difficult moment. But I really, I, I'm, I feel, I'm hopeful that this, the consistency of uh, Cuban culture will uh, continue. We have time for one more question back there. Actually, I have two questions. <laughs> one is, um, how important is it for you not to be able to publish in Cuba? Is that detrimental? Why is it so vital? Well, uh, really, it's been very hard for me. You know, I, 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 I've been, I am not the type of the very nationalistic uh, person, and you know, and, and I, I have been writing and in, more in, in a global perspective, so I am inclined to that. But that said, it's very tough. Uh, you know, not to have a country. And it's, it has been really uh, terrible for me as an intellectual. Uh, I didn't complain, I just kept working, but really it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a void in my, uh, in my heart. The other question is, uh, what, what do you attribute to uh, the fact that so many um, Marchands and so many uh, people in the world of uh, dealing with art gives so much importance to pay the amounts of money that they pay when they go to the Havana Biennale, which is in contrast to other countries in Latin America, so much more, right? Because there's great art in Rio, in Argentina, in Peru, uh, you know, Venezuela, you name it, Colombia. But for some reason, there is this incredible investment of energy and money in buying art from the artists you just mentioned and others. What do you attribute that incredible success to? Well, the artists are really good. But uh, apart uh, from that, you know, Cuba is a myth. And the Americans, I don't know why they love Cuba. <laughs> there are two countries in Latin America that you know the North Americans really love, which are Mexico and Cuba. But Cuba has the extra of the revolution and the Castro and Che Guevara, and you know, and, and, and the situation, the Havana is a haunting city. And I mean, this is this attraction. This, there's a sex appeal, a glamour about Cuba, which is really attractive. And it's also the forbidden. So now I can go there. And, and, and you know, and there are also, you know, many people going to, trying to buy very cheap, cheap art cheaply and thinking about the investing. And, you know, so. All these factors, I think, that are in place. Thank you. Thank you, Gerardo. And My pleasure. Thank you.
And thank you all for coming. Again, thank you to La Cop for partnering with us and, and by extension OCAD as well. I do invite you again to come back and see if you have not yet seen it, the, the picturing the Americas exhibition. Uh, and our next talk within the context of the Americas show is by Joseph Boyden on July 29th. Thank you. Good evening. Thank you for listening to this Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. For additional recordings, as well as information on upcoming programming and events, please visit us online at ago.net slash talks.